Well, good morning, family. What a joy, what a joy, what a joy it is to see you all here in the house of the Lord. God is good to us, isn't he? Absolutely. And we're just so thankful for another opportunity that the Father has given us to come together, to celebrate, to share, to laugh, to cry, and to experience him as we embrace him and embrace one another. He's good to us. And I'm certainly honoring the Lord and thank God for our pastor. What, what a blessing that our senior pastor is spending time with our children. Isn't that wonderful? What a blessing. And uh, I'm thankful and commend him for that because I know so many pastors that would think to minister or to spend time with the children would be beneath them. And the fact that he uh, has that at his heart is so special to us because the children are special to us. And uh, it has been said that uh, the generation that is uh, coming behind us, many have said that they are the church of tomorrow. I beg to differ. I believe they're the church of today. <laughs> and uh, we're grateful for that. So we invest in our children. We invest in our youth. And we're just grateful again for our pastor and for the leadership and all of our pastors who are leading us in this cause to reach our generation for the Lord Jesus. Well, I, I want you all to, you know, you got to do this. You got to turn to somebody next to you and tell them, I'm so happy to see you. I don't know what to do with myself. Go ahead and tell them that. Um, I'm so happy. I don't know what to do with myself. All right. Now, uh, someone would say, I would do some cartwheels, but we're afraid the ushers will carry us out. So we, but we're just glad that you are here, and we appreciate again this opportunity to share the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we just so thank you, thank you, thank you for your faithfulness, your goodness towards us. Thank you for this morning that you've awakened us. Thank you. It's by your love and your mercy. Would you, sir, now give us clarity of thought, continuity of thinking, accuracy of the text? Would you help your servant to teach in such a way that even a child would be able to understand and embrace the powerful truth of Scripture? We give you praise and thank you for all the dear ones that are surrounding us. May this be a moment in which all of our hearts are transformed and we would leave here rejoicing at the goodness of the Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series on being Jesus. Being Jesus. And it's exciting because how many want to be more like Jesus? It's our heart to be more and more like him. And all of our pastors under the direction of our senior pastor have been leading us in this understanding through the four Gospels. How Jesus lives his life. What does Jesus do? You know, oftentimes people wear the little band around their wrist or maybe a little bracelet and they have this little saying, what would Jesus do? Well, we're diving into the text to find out what he did so we can do what he did. <laughs> so we don't have to guess about it. It doesn't become a guessing game. We, we dive into the text. We look at the four Gospels and they help us through the blended Gospels to understand, to grasp again the ministry of Jesus. And uh, Pastor last week took us into this understanding of the, 
of the, not only the trials, but really the beginning of the mockery and the scourging that took place within the life of Jesus. And the question was asked, what is justice? What is fair? What is right? And we saw uh, introduced to us through the text the most horrific expression or account given in Scripture regarding the uh, punishment or the mockery and all that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. What, what a picture, what a scene as we looked at that. I, I don't know about you, but as I heard pastors sharing that message, and although I've heard the account, I've read the account, I've preached the account, there is never a time that we speak of Jesus and his whipping, his scourging, all that took place that it does not cause me to go into a state of sadness, reflection, even to the extent that I was sharing with someone, my, my mother and my father both are asleep in Jesus now. They are awaiting the resurrection of the Lord. And I can recall, both my parents were from South Carolina, I can recall my mother would take a lot of the old songs, a lot of the old hymns and uh, what we call the line songs. Many of you would not be familiar with that, but the line songs were songs in which many of the early slaves and uh, my ancestors would take hymns and they would change the songs to reflect the, the, the culture, to reflect the pain, to reflect the agony that they were experiencing in that time of their life. And they would many times take songs and introduce a sense of hope within those songs. But many times the songs were just merely to reflect something that was happening within their lives. And my mother took one song that was a line song and she would sing it constantly in the house. And I'm going to be honest with you, though my mother was a wonderful singer, she sang in choirs and things to that effect, she was a wonderful singer. Whenever she would sing this particular song, it would strike a chord of pain or reflection or sadness within my heart. And it, it was tied to the crucifixion. Uh, she, she would sing, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified? My Lord. When she would sing that song, it would seem as though the whole house would come at a hush. And my four brothers and I, we, we would sit there and we would just be quiet. Even if we were cutting up, we would just stop cutting up and just start reflecting as though we were actually there as Jesus was being crucified. Oh, yes, we were still growing in our walk and understanding of the Lord, and we didn't have the full grasp 
of the sacrifice and all that Jesus had done. But just by her singing that song, we reflected upon whatever must have taken place on that cross with all that was happening. It had to have been something that represented the sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus towards us. And it brought about tears. It brought about a time of just being quiet and reflect. To this day, to this day, it still impacts me. And so as we're moving forward in our understanding of what's happening here, we're going to now, having addressed the trial that took place with Annas and Caiaphas and the trial that took place with Pilate, now we're moving to the point of the crucifixion. And we're going to find as we look at the text, as we begin to examine the crucifixion, we're going to find that there's so much that's going on, almost to the point it is confusing. Because there are so many ideas and so many people that have their take on what is taking place to the point that if we're not able to pull it apart and look at each piece of it, we would find ourselves mired in a state of confusion saying, what's really happening here? On your handouts that you receive, if you take this and fill this in, I think this will help us springboard into what we're talking about here. Fill this in, if you will, please. So many opinions. Only one matters. So many opinions, so many thoughts, a lot of chatter, a lot of people talking, a lot of people thinking through as they're observing the events that will take place in this day. So many opinions, but there's only one that really matters. That's it. Everybody is free to make their opinion and make their observation state their observation, but what it all boils down to is one person, what their opinion is, what their belief is, what their thoughts are. We'll explore that further. You know, when we talk about elements of confusion, I, I, I think about this because about two years ago, my wife and I had gone, taken our children, my niece and my son, to Cal Expo to the State Fair, and uh, we'd gone there to spend the whole day, and we did. And we ended our day with uh, going there, getting some uh, snow cones and some cotton candy and all the stuff you shouldn't eat, fried Twinkies, everything. We were just, <laughs> just foolishness. And we were sitting there holding all of this in our hands, and we we're standing there trying to debate on whether or not we were going to stay longer, having gone and walked through the exhibits, and we had gone and looked at uh, uh, a concert that had taken place. They had a gospel concert out there, and we went to see some of our friends who were performing. And we were trying to decide if we were going to go to the fairway and just close the evening out. By this time, it's about 7 o'clock. We would just close the evening out and do some rides. And uh, as we're standing there finishing up all of the things we shouldn't have eaten, we're standing there, and all of a sudden I looked to my left towards where the fairway was. And as I observed, 
there was seemingly a surge of people who were running towards us. Just a, all you could see was just a massive crowd of folks coming our direction. And uh, for you who, who don't know this, um, uh, as we looked at this crowd coming towards us, uh, we being black folk, if you haven't noticed, <laughs> we being black folks, we, we do things a little bit different than some of y'all. Some of y'all ask the question, what's going on? And we say, tell me about it on the 11 o'clock news. You understand what I'm saying? We out. All we saw was the crowd. And we dropped snow cones, we dropped cotton candy, we dropped fried Twinkies, and we started taking off. We got to the car. I mean, I peeled some wheelies getting up out of that parking lot. We were gone. Later on, we found out that somebody had gotten in a fight or something, and the fight had taken place, and it kind of scared everybody, and as a result of that, they thought someone was going to start shooting and so forth, and, and, uh, uh, but again, I, I wasn't going to stay there to get the details. I would find that out in the comforts of my own home. <laughs> See? But the thing that was interesting as I thought through that, and I'm thinking about what we're going to see here in the crucifixion of Jesus, is this whole idea of what we call group think, in which uh, there was a research psychologist by the name of Irving Janis, who did a study at the University of Yale, Yale University, and he made the observation that with group think, it is the imposition or the imposing of a belief from the uh, in-group upon the out-group in which it causes an entire group of people to move into a place of dysfunctional behavior. It's almost an intimidation to oppose the thought that is being presented. It's called groupthink. And I, I present to you that what is happening on this day of the crucifixion is groupthink. I also would even go as far as to state it's not just one segment of groupthink, but you've got groupthink over here, you've got groupthink over here, and you've got groupthink over here. Everybody has an opinion. And they feel very strongly about what their opinion is. Thus, you see the clashing of these opinions that bring about a, a state of confusion. We're going to be introduced here in a moment to four soldiers who are given the responsibility to escort the condemned, and in this case being Jesus Christ, to the place of crucifixion. Two soldiers in front and two Roman soldiers behind, and Jesus standing in the hollow of the four. Then we're introduced to a group of women who there are some that know Jesus and there are others who do not know Jesus. But they're lamenting and they're mourning over what they're uh, observing as far as the execution that is about to take place. We're going to be introduced to a man who is a foreigner who shows up and he's there for one reason and God's going to take. God's going to take this man who's there for one purpose and turn everything around. His, literally his day will be turned upside down or in some instances right side up. He's going to experience something that's going to throw him on this particular day. 
we're going to see there'll be others that will be introduced, as we'll see in passive uh, observation, that are standing there and they're observing this, and yet no one really knows what's happening. Let's look at the text. So he delivered him over, this would be Pilate, over to them to be crucified. This would be the Roman soldiers. And when they had mocked Jesus, they stripped Jesus of the purple robe and cloak and put his own clothes on him and led Jesus away out bearing his own cross. This would actually be a cross beam. It would not be the entire cross. For a portion of the cross would have already been placed within the ground at the place of execution. But rather it would be a cross beam in which the condemned, this person now being Jesus, would have to carry their own cross beam. Can you imagine the intensity, the intensity of pain and heaviness and the weight of this cross beam upon Jesus having been, uh, in essence, submitted to scourging, which, as we learned last week, is one of the most horrific means, again, of punishment that can be given to a person. Pastor illustrated to us that they would take whips and strips of leather and tie bone and metal upon it, and they would take it and place in the condemned, leaning them forward, leaning them forward, possibly on a post. They would take this whip and they would pull it and swing it down, and it would connect to skin, it would connect to flesh, and they would pull it down as to expose the flesh. As to expose the flesh. In most instances, from all recorded history, many people would die under the process of scourging alone. They would never even make it to the cross. And then in some instances it is recorded that men lost their minds. They would become delusional just through the scourging process. And yet we find Jesus, although he would survive the scourging and the mockery, it would appear that Jesus remains in his full cognitive ability all the way to the cross. It goes on to say in our text that they put his own clothes back on him. He was bearing his own cross. They took him to crucify him to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. This would fulfill the passage of Scripture that is actually brought out by the Apostle Paul later in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 where Paul makes this observation that Jesus, the Christ, redeemed us from the curse of the law by, watch this, in essence, becoming the curse, taking on the curse of us. Jesus redeemed us, bought us back, purchased us from the curse of the law. In other words, all of us were under the curse. All of us were subject to the curse of the law. The law required that the penalty of sin was death or separation eternally from God. That was the penalty. But Jesus said not so. By his obedience to the Father, he redeemed us. Anybody glad he redeemed you? He redeemed us. He bought us back. He paid the price. He paid the ultimate price. There was nothing that you and I could do 
to pay the price. There was nothing you and I could do to be good enough, to make ourselves acceptable enough. Jesus Christ solely and alone paid the price so that you and I might have eternal life. In other words, it should have been us on that cross, but Jesus said, I'll take your place. I'll take the full brunt of the penalty for you. You don't have to take the brunt of the penalty. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he redeemed us from the curse of the law, set us free. And and it goes on to say in that same passage, this was written, this was actually spoken of, and it's referencing Deuteronomy 21 and 23, where it speaks of cursed is everyone that hangs from the tree. Curses anyone and everyone that hangs from the tree, which denotes to us that there had to be a certain way that Jesus would die. Jesus had to be crucified. He could not die and pay the penalty by being stoned. He could not pay the penalty and remove the curse from us by being thrown off of a cliff. We find that in Jesus' ministry, you remember shortly after Jesus had had the experience of fasting and prayer at the beginning of his ministry, his earthly ministry at age 30, his public ministry, that there was a point where Jesus comes out of the wilderness and he's full of the Holy Spirit and he goes into the synagogue and he begins to share in the synagogue and the religious people get mad, they get angry at Jesus and they take him outside of the synagogue and they attempt to throw him off the cliff. And the scripture says, this has always fascinated me, that Jesus just turned around and looked at them and just walked away. That, that just blows me. It's like Jesus just, he's getting ready to get thrown off the cliff and he recognizes that no one takes my life. I've got to lay it down and it's not time for me to lay it down yet. There's a timing, there's a place where it's going to happen and today ain't today, fellas. And he turns around and says, I'm bad, I'm up out of here. It's fascinating to me. They couldn't throw him off the cliff in their attempts to stone him, in their attempts to murder him earlier in the ministry. They could not do it because Jesus has to get to the cross. He has to hang on the tree in order for the curse to be removed. How fascinating. How fascinating it comes together for us. Let's continue reading. And as they went out and led... Jesus away, they found a passby. Now follow me with this. They found a passby. They seized one Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, who was coming in from the country. And they compelled this man, this means forcefully. This was not a nice invitation. They compelled this man to carry the cross of Jesus. They laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now we're introduced here. To someone else that has an opinion. We're introduced to someone else that has an opinion of what's going on. This man is called Simon. Simon is from a different country. He's traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. He comes from nearly 800 miles away. It is possible that he was one who had an infinity towards the Jewish faith. And the Jewish people, and it's possible he may have even been a Jew himself. But he has come now, eyes wide open, possibly with some excitement and enthusiasm. I am going to celebrate the Passover. And he shows up 
into this occupied territory that is occupied by Palestine is occupied by the Roman officials, the Roman government. And he goes there, and the, the, the process is that Jesus is carrying this crossbeam, and because of his weakened state, because of his exhaustion, Jesus falls under the pressure of the crossbeam, and the Roman soldiers go to Simon, who is standing there as a passby. We, we don't even get the idea that he was really paying attention to what was going on. He might have been saying, this is none of my business. I'm just on my way to go to the first plenary session of the Passover event. Okay. And he's passing by, and it was incumbent upon whomever the Roman soldiers would take the tap of their spear and place it upon. If they placed it upon you to do something, you had to do it. There was not, this was not something that was an option. You had to do it. And Simon is the one in whom is given the responsibility to assist Jesus. Now let me tell you something about Simon, because I think this is duly noted, and we must note this here, that Simon comes from Africa. And most historians would even go as far as to give us some detail and say not only does he come from Africa, but he's a dark-skinned man. And uh, I, I was sharing this with someone a few months ago, and one of my, I consider them a friend, but they were, well, you know, you know, Parnell, uh, you, you know, that, that's all, you, you, we really don't know. We really don't know. And I thought to myself, well, I tell you what, I tell you what, we, meaning this, we all up in there. I'm going to help you with it. <laughs> I said, I, I bet you I'm more up in there than you from your Scandinavian culture. Come on, somebody. <laughs> so we're all up in there. He was a dark-skinned man from Africa. And somebody would say, well, I don't think you need to place so much emphasis on that. No, I, I think we do have to place emphasis on that in a, in a system, in a social system that, in, at least in the places that I frequent and talk in many discussions with individuals who will tell me, oh, why are you a Christian? Why would you embrace a white man's faith or religion? I am so glad that I can report to the house today that our faith has nothing to do with one particular culture. If you're white, black, red, yellow, makes no difference. This gospel is for us. What Jesus did, he did it for each and every one of us. Hallelujah. I guarantee you in the kingdom to come, there will not be a black section. Or a white section. Or a red section. I think one of the most beautiful things that I can see here in Bridgeway is when I come in here and see more and more the diversity that is emerging in this place. Even more so than when I first walked up in here. I think it happened because I did walk up in here. Come on, somebody. And it's beautiful. To be celebrated. We need some more Simons in the house. Come on, somebody. We need some more Simons in the house. 
those who can come alongside and help to carry this message of the gospel. But keep in mind, Simon did not have a clue of who Jesus was. As far as he was concerned, this was the most demeaning, insulting thing that he could be asked to do. He was here to worship. He was here to participate in the Passover. And now he's given the responsibility of helping a criminal. But God has interesting ways when he wants to get your attention of putting you in places you don't feel comfortable with. God has interesting ways of putting us right in the place that he can reveal himself. For you see, Simon was coming to celebrate the Passover. But when God gets through with this day, he will have met the Passover lamb. Simon is sitting here. And can you imagine as he's carrying this cross beam and he's looking across and Jesus is still possibly still attached to the cross beam. And all of a sudden their eyes connect. There is a change that takes place in the heart of Simon. Why do you think so? Because later, note here in the text that we just read, we're told that his sons were Alexander and Rufus. And historians tell us that Andrew, Alexander and Rufus were affluent Christian leaders who spread the gospel in their region, which suggests in order for them to get the gospel, I submit to you their daddy had to receive the gospel. And their daddy poured the gospel into them. So I, I submit to you that this encounter that Simon had with Jesus, the Passover lamb, was a life-transforming experience. I would have liked to have been able to walk home with Simon that day to hear what was in his heart, having been with Jesus. Simon of Cyrene. Let's continue reading. And there followed him a great multitude. Got some more opinions getting ready to pop up here. There followed him a great multitude. This great multitude is a crowd made up of those who are there for the Passover, those who are followers of Jesus, those who are those who have admired Jesus. They aren't necessarily those who have followed him. They're people who are just there, the looky-loos. They're just there because there seems to be an accident on the other side of the freeway. So they're sitting there blocking traffic. I'm not talking about you, y'all. I'm talking about Jesus here. And this crowd, this great multitude of people and of women, notice here, were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, watch this, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. Jesus goes on to say, and they will say to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says to these women that are there on the side, and they're grieving and they're weeping and they're mourning. Some know him, some do not. But they're going through, back in the culture in that day, they had what they would call, what we would call today, uh, professional mourners. Now, these professional mourners did not necessarily know the decedent, but to make the family look good. The family many times would bring them in, or in this case, the government would bring them in as to present a show, to kind of show things up, you know, to really draw the crowd in. 
So you have these professional mourners that are there. I, I, I remember uh, in, the, in the South, uh, that not so much in this culture here in, in the Western United States, but in the South, they used to have what they called professional mourners. I didn't believe it until I went to some of my family members' funeral. And uh, I was standing there and, in a funeral of one of my uncles, and I saw this lady walk in, and uh, she was fully dressed. I mean, she had on this beautiful black dress and had on this big, giant hat. looked like she had killed an ostrich. I mean, that thing was wrapped around her head, and she was walking in. And, and I'm sitting there with the family, and I began to ask questions. Who is that? Who, how is she related to the family? How is she related to the family? And I really began to ask questions as she got to the casket. And all of a sudden, she was falling out, and she was screaming, and, Oh, oh my God, take me, take me, take me, take me. It should have been me. It should have been me. And I'm thinking, is this one of my lost, you know, cousins or something? And they said, no, this woman just likes to show up at funerals. And she shows up at funerals, and some people pay her to fall out. She's a professional mourner. And uh, in this particular case, I, I was sitting there watching that, and I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen anything like that until I began to read this text. They had these women who were sitting there on the side, and they're mourning, and they're lamenting, and Jesus stops long enough, and he says, Listen, don't cry for me, but cry for yourselves. Because in essence, there's a time when which judgment will come, and it will be more blessed. Watch this. It will be more blessed that the women who could, again, have babies, you would be barren and that you would not be able to breastfeed. It would be better that you would be in that state. Blessed are those who are barren, which is counter the culture. Counter the culture. Because the culture said, blessed are you that have children. That was the culture. To be barren was considered to be a curse. Jesus reversed it. He says, no, there's a time that judgment will come. And he says, let me put it to you this way. He says, if you are lamenting now, over that which is taking place that represents innocence, what will you do? That's the wet wood. That's the innocence, the green wood. What will you do when the dry wood comes? When the time where judgment is justified, how will you handle it? That's the question Jesus put out. He says, don't weep for me, but weep in essence for that which is to come. And it was fulfilled in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., when we see the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. And when they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, myrrh, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, I want you to see something here. Look at me for just a moment because this is very important. Very important. Jesus is taken to this place called the skull or Golgotha. By the way, my, my wife and I uh, actually went to the Holy Land three years ago. And we had made up our mind that we wanted to go out of all the places we were going to get to see, we wanted to go to what we believe would be, quote-unquote, Calvary, or the place that Jesus would be crucified. We, we wanted to see it. And there were lots of things that were put out to us on our trip. We were just with a small group of pastors, and we had a Jewish tour guide who was leading us. So he was very much aware of what was going on in the, in the region. He could tell us and show us places. But here was an interesting question. He looked at us. He said, do you want me to take you to the place that tradition says it is? 
Or do you want me to take you to the place that it most likely is? He said, because here's the thing about it, and we figured this out early on in the trip, that every place that they would say this happened, this happened, that happened here, this happened here. They would typically have a cross. They would have a, uh, some type of store there. They would sell to the tourists and things, relics and things to that effect. But we would later find out that generally those were not the places that the events took place. But to keep it as a means of ease for the tourists to get there, they would say, oh, here it is. Here's where it happened. And they'd build a church there. Then all the buses would stop there. He says, I can do that. I can take you to where everybody thinks it is. But how about I put you on the freeway and we go the other direction and let me show you where it most likely is. And when we got there, what stood out to me was that we we got to an area that I looked. He says, now take a look over here at this mountain or this hill. And it was right in the middle of the city, right in the middle of the city. And we are outside, actually outside the walls, but within the city of Jerusalem, it was outside the walls. But we could look. And as I looked, he says, can you make out as you look at it, if you look closely, you would see, he says, you don't even have to work hard at it. It looks like a skull. You could see the eyes. You could see the place where the mouth would be. You could see the place where the nose would be. He said, and when they were doing the excavation around this area, they found a tomb that was just within yards of this area here, not far from this place. He said there was a tomb. And in this tomb, they never have found any bones. They have never found a body that was in this tomb. We know that it had to belong to an affluent person that built the tomb. But we never found any bones or any body within this tomb. And he says, and right here is most likely where the crucifixion took place. And ironic enough, there was no church there. No cathedral there. You know what was there? A bus station. A bus station at the foot of the mountain or at the foot of the hill. A bus station. I thought to myself, Hi, how interesting there would be a bus station, not a cathedral. A bus station, not a church. A bus station. And as I looked at this, I reflect upon this passage here. It says they take him to the place called Galgotha. But notice here, they offer him a drink that is made of wine, gold, and myrrh. Now, the... the uh, Women who were affluent within Jerusalem, they had some money. They had some money. As a means of showing mercy to the condemned, as a means of showing mercy to whoever was going to be executed, they would make up this concoction that in essence, let's call it what it was. It was a drug. It was a drug that would be given to the condemned as a means of lessening the pain. And allowing them to, some, in some instance, to kind of go out of themselves to be able to endure whatever they were facing, whether in this case to be executed and placed upon the cross. They offer Jesus the drink. Jesus refuses to drink it. Now, I'm going to tell you why that's important. Because had Jesus taken the drink, he would not have been able to fully embrace all that was being put against him. He would have, in other words, compromised. And here's the problem, had he compromised. Had he not taken the fullness of the pain that was inflicted upon him from a spiritual standpoint, I submit to you that my sickness or my disease or possibly one of our sins that was attached to that element of pain would have been left out. 
But because he took it all, everything that the enemy has ever held over my head was attached to Jesus. Nothing was left out. Every curse, not one curse, that curse, but not this curse. This wasn't no hometown buffet. Jesus took everything. He took everything. He says, I will take every sickness. I will take every disease. I will take every heartache. I will take every pain of separation. I will take that divorce. I will take that child that is wayward. I will take that family member that's on drugs. I will take all of it. I will experience it. I will feel all of it. I will not be impaired by anything that will keep me from embracing what is impacting my people. Jesus said, I'll take everything. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I have to admit, I'm glad it was Jesus because I've been like, give it to me. Tylenol, everything. You understand? Tylenol, my doll, every all. You know. Give it to me. Jesus says, no. I must fully embrace what I am experiencing right now because if I take it now, even to the point of death, the enemy will never be able to hold that against my people ever again. The curse has to be removed. The curse has to be taken away. Jesus took it all. I'm so glad Jesus didn't get drugged up. Come on, y'all. Jesus didn't get drugged up. He took all of it. He took all of it. That's why in Hebrews 12 and 2, it says that we look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured it. He would not have been able to endure it had he been drugged up. He says, I'm going to go through everything so that my people can be totally delivered. Let's keep reading. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there the soldiers crucified him. And with, with him, two robbers, criminals, one on the right, one on the left, and Jesus between them. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Come on, tell the truth up in here. Had it been us, some of us would have gone out in a flame cussing. But he says, no, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when they had crucified him, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. Why four parts? Because there are four soldiers. One part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Then they cast lots to divide his garments among them to decide what each should take. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them. This is Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Let's keep going. And over his head, on the cross, they put an inscription of the charge against him. This was customary, that whenever the condemned was being led out, they first of all would lead him out. In this case, Jesus, they led him out to the place in which he would go the longest route to get to Golgotha. It was not any shortcuts here. They wanted as many people to see him as possible. And it was customary that the Roman soldier would carry a placard in front of the condemned that would have placed upon the placard what the individual was being executed for or why they were being condemned. In 
they, either the, the soldier would carry it or they would take it and put a rope around it and place it over the condemned's head and the, or the condemned's neck. And then once they were placed upon the cross, they would take that placard and place it over their head. Such was the case here. So over the head on the cross, they put this inscription of the charge against him that Pilate wrote. Note that Pilate wrote, which read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Notice what he says. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It is an insult for him to say this. It is an insult to the Jews. This is his way of getting back to the religious leaders who earlier had intimidated him and pressured him and put him into a state that he really felt helpless. And at the same time, he did what they wanted him to do by turning Jesus over to them. But he says, this is my way of getting back. I'm going to put a sign over the condemned's head that says he is the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, and I'm going to put it in my vernacular, if you don't get up out my face. <laughs> he says, what I have written, I have written. In other words, no further discussion on this. Keep in mind, Pilate, this is his opinion. He doesn't even have a clue of what's going on. Many opinions, but only one really matters. He's given his opinion. Here's the king of the Jews, but nobody really knows what's going on but Jesus. And Jesus, in his loving and sacrificial way, does something that has up until that time had never been done and since that time has never been done and will never be done again, Jesus takes the full brunt of the penalty so that you and I might live. Jesus does it. Jesus does it. Takes the full brunt of the penalty. Someone said like this, he could have called millions of angels Millions of angels to respond to him. Millions of angels could have come and responded to Jesus. But, but, interesting enough, I submit to you, even the angels were scratching their proverbial head trying to figure out what's going on. Why do you say that? Why do you say that, Pastor? Because just 33 years earlier, they were singing praises. Look, look what God has done. Look what the Father has done. Look, he has brought redemption. He's brought Jesus into the earth. God in flesh has come into the earth. And they're singing praises. Now, they're scratching their heads. 33 years earlier, they're singing praises. And demons, demons, back then, 33 years later, earlier, were scratching their head. What in the world is going on here is what the demons were saying. Now the roles have reversed. Now the roles have reversed. The angels are scratching their head and demons are rejoicing. Demons are rejoicing. Demons are dancing around in hell and saying, ah, we've got them now. We've got them now. Now, now what you say about this, God? And they're waving their fists, as it were, in the hands of God. And yet, because you and I know that God does not have a plan B. 
God's plan A is always his plan A. Even when it looks like the back is against the wall, the clock is at 11.59 and no seconds, and you're trying to figure out how this is going to come through, how many have figured out that God does not ever turn to a plan B? He will never look at your situation, your situation, your circumstance, your pain, your challenge. He will never turn around and say, oh, myself, what am I going to do? He will never be in a place that it will cause him to go into a state of an emergency concerning us. God always, always has a plan that is in operation even when it doesn't look like it. The angels might be looking confused. Why doesn't he just call for us? At the blink of an eye, we would come and we would handle it. In fact, it would not have been the first time that angels have responded. In fact, it wouldn't even have taken a multitude of angels. One angel could have handled the situation. One angel. You, you don't believe it? Look at 2 Corinthians. Just write it down. 2 Corinthians 19.35. 2 Corinthians 19.35. There was a king by the name of Sennacherib who turned around and was coming against Hezekiah and God's people. And Hezekiah cried out to the Lord's people and said, God, I need you to help your boy and help your people because the king of the Assyrians is coming against us. And God sent one angel to wipe out 185,000 soldiers. One angel. One angel. Let me give you some thought on this, and maybe this will help you. Here's what it boils down to, folks. I don't care how much confusion may be around you concerning your circumstance. We can learn something through what Jesus went through. There's only one opinion that really matters. When confusion is surrounding you, let me give you three things that will help you to work through that confusion, to work through whatever is trying to come against your family, come against your life, come against your emotions, come against the reports that you're hearing around you. A lot of chatter around you. But there's only one opinion that really matters. Please write this down. Number one, lock into the reality that God knows what's going on in our lives. Write that down. God knows what's going on in your life. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be as clear as I can. I'll even be prophetic. Let me just say to you, don't trip. God is working. God is working. But you've got to lock into the reality that nothing is catching him off guard. Secondly, please note, keep your faith fixed on Jesus. Oh, there's going to be some rough waters. See, some of you were just like the angels, like the angels. Back just a few weeks ago, you were singing and rejoicing. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And now you're 10 days into the new year and all hell is broken loose. And you're wondering how you're going to get through this. I'm going to tell you how you're going to get through it. It's the same God that brought you through 2015. It's the same God that's going to work in your favor and bless you to get through 2016. The same God that walked with you is going to walk with you now. Keep your faith fixed on Jesus. And thirdly, I like this one. Here's the thing I want to share with you. When the smoke clears, you and I are going to be found standing strong. When the smoke clears. But you got to let the smoke clear. Right now you're a little confused because there's smoke all around you. Smoke all around you. Confusion all around you. A lot of chatter all around you. But when the smoke clears, we're going to be found standing. I'm a Bonanza fan. I like Bonanza. I will come to work late to watch Bonanza. Don't tell nobody. I like Bonanza. But I never could figure out, never could figure out, everybody gets shot on Bonanza dies except little Joe Cartwright. Look, Joe has been shot so many times, and he keeps on living. He'll get shot, and Hoss and Paul come over there, and they'll grab him as he falls off his horse, and they'll say, are you all right, son? Are you all right? And he'll say, I, I think I can make it. I'm going to be all right. 
I'm going and he, they'll carry him on into the Ponderosa. I need some saints to be like that. You have been wounded. You have been attacked. You're, as the, the late Pastor E.V. Hill used to say at the Mount Zion Baptist Church in Compton, California, he used to put it like this in one of his famous sermons. He said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You're in your crucifixion time right now. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of confusion. But don't worry about it. Resurrection is on the way. Resurrection for your family, resurrection for your marriage, resurrection for your body, resurrection for every area of your lives. God will not forsake his people. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Are you hearing me? Let me close on this thought and maybe this will help you understand it. So I'm sitting in the barbershop on last Thursday. While I'm sitting in the barbershop, there's a man who comes and sits in the chair next to me. And while they're working on my head, I overhear his conversation. It seems like I'm getting real nosy in the barbershop. And uh, he was sitting there in his chair, and he had limped in and walked in with a limp. And I didn't know what was wrong with the man. But as he sat in the chair, they said, you know, you're the only one that we let come in through the back door. We keep this back door locked. But you're the only one, young man, that we let come through this door. Well, later he began to share that he had just come from the doctor earlier in that week. And the doctor had ran all the MRIs, all the tests, all the lab tests. And he said, so the doctor's opinions, they're saying that they think I have MS. They think I have MS. But they really don't know. And they're running all of these tests. Well, I'm sitting there, and in my mind, there's a state of confusion going on around me. Because I'm thinking, should I pray for this man? Or should I not pray for this man? There's so many people that are in this barbershop. Should I stop and touch him and lay my hands on him? I don't know if I want to do that. All these voices were chatting. One voice was in the other. Well, you know you're late. You need to get to your appointment. So why don't you just take up? You can pray for him in the car. You don't actually have to pray for him here. All kind of voices were speaking into my ear. There was another voice that was saying, well, you know, you can just pray quietly to yourself. You don't really have to go and put a scene on in all of this. And maybe another voice says, he will probably reject you from praying for him. He may not want you to pray for him. He may not even be a believer. I heard all of these voices and I'm sitting there. And as I got up out of my chair, I paid the barber, I put my coat on, and I was getting ready to walk past the man that was sitting in the chair. And the Holy Spirit begins to speak into my heart and says, stop right now and pray for him pray for him and I stopped and I asked the man he's got his eyes closed while he's getting his hair cut so he couldn't see me but I stopped and I looked and I said can you tell me your name tell me your first name and he didn't hear me and then all of a sudden he opened his eyes and looked at me he said what'd you say and the barber said he wants to know your name he wants to know your name and he says my name is Terry and I said Terry I want to pray for you because you've got a lot of voices that are speaking to you right now. But the only thing that matters is what God says concerning the situation. And I'm going to believe God for you right now. And then he did something. He did something that just set it all up. He says, you're going to pray for me right now? And I said, yes. And he put his hand out and he grabbed hold of my hand. And all of a sudden I opened my eyes. Even the barber stepped back and had her hands up like this. And she was praying. And I said, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. 
I don't know when you're going to do it, but there's nothing impossible for you. I know you for myself to be a healer. I know you for myself to be a deliverer. I know you for myself to put food on the table when people are hungry. I know you for myself to put shelter over my head. I know you for myself. I'm not guessing at it, God. I know what you can do, and I'm believing God for Terry right now. And I prayed for Terry, and Terry opened up his eyes, and he said, it was meant for me to see you today. And I had to reflect that I had to be Simon in that man's life this day. I had to be the one that was coming alongside to help him lift the burden, lift the weight that was upon his shoulder. Every one of you are called to be a Simon somewhere. Every one of you are called to give somebody a hope, give them something to believe. Something to know that our God is able to do what he said he would do. I need to close and say this to you, and I'll just say it just as boldly. I'm going to say it just as boldly. You're in the battle right now. You're in your Friday night. But here's the good news. The enemy might win some battles, but he won't win this war. He's not going to win this war. I read the end of the book, and we win. My God. I said I read the end of the book, and we win. Glory to God. When you leave here today, you can leave here with your head up. You can leave here with encouragement in your heart that Jesus took every stripe. Jesus took every pain. Jesus took every attack so that you and I could walk redeemed before him and celebrate him with praise. I got to get out of here. Would you stand to your feet and may I pray with you? Pastor Brian's going to come in just a moment and he's going to make an announcement to us. But I want to pray with you. Can I pray with you before you go? Can I pray with you before you go? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. The other day, the Kings were playing the Lakers at Sleep Train Arena. Some of y'all probably were there. And uh, they said the last few minutes of the game, they said there was like a roar that came in the place, a deafening roar. Now, they hadn't even won the game yet. They were still in the battle. But they made up their mind, you don't have to wait till the battle is over. You can still shout now. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Y'all, I ain't talking about the kings. I'm talking about your situation. You ain't got to wait till you get the victory and see the manifestation. You can rejoice and praise God now in the middle of what you're facing. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Wrap your arms around yourself. Let me pray for you and I got to go. Wrap your hands around yourself. Those are the arms of Jesus. Those are the arms of your pastors. Those are the arms of saints and believers all around this room. And we lift you up. Yeah, you're going through something. It's Friday night for you, but Sunday's coming. Don't trip. Don't trip. Jesus has already whooped the devil. I didn't say whipped. He whooped the devil. Death is conquered. Sickness and disease is conquered. You and I have been given the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I surround you with peace. I surround you with love. I surround you with joy. God is in control. And everything is not going to be all right. It's already all right. I want you to give God right now. Do, now listen. The other day, the other day, the other day, the kings were playing. And the folks shouted for the kings. I want you to shout for the king of kings. Shout a praise out to him right there. Come on, give a shout. We already have the victory. 
Give him praise.